So last week, we started off, moms and dads, families, we started off a series called Owning the Vision. The, the, the idea behind this is that, and to recap what we talked about last week, it is time for these kids in this room to own their faith. You as moms and dads can't do it for them. Your faith as a mom and as a dad is not good enough for your kid. It is time for them to take ownership of their faith. Hudson, can you turn me down just slightly on number one? It's time for them to take ownership of their faith. It, I told them it's just like when you place the keys in their hands to that car, they now have ownership, responsibility, and authority of where that car is going to go. It's now time, the same thing with their faith. It's time for them to take ownership of their faith. And we said that God has a vision in store for all of us of being made like him and making him known. That we as a student ministry, we want every single person here to know who Jesus is, to love Jesus, and to share everything about Jesus. We don't want it just to be something that we know about. It's not something we just want to hear. I said last week that the book of James, which we're going to spend the rest of this year on, is all about one word, doer. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. I said that's our word for the year as a student ministry. We are going to be doers, and throughout the year, we're going to talk about practical things on how we own this faith and how we share this faith. Tonight, though, is all about, last week was called Own It, this week is called Embrace It. Say Embrace It. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. How do we own it and then how do we embrace it? Last week, I'll be honest, when I left here, I was like, I feel pretty good. I feel, I feel good. I said that, that, what we talked about last week just kind of got me excited. The, the message that I felt like God gave me was something that excited me and I was glad to share it. Got some awesome text messages from some of you parents, some of you kids. I loved it. But, Tony, Brett, you guys know what this feels like. When you come off of that, you just kind of tank. You're just worn out mentally, emotionally, you're just done. So I did my normal Sunday night routine. It's probably the earliest I've ever gotten home on a Sunday night. Uh, I got home at 8.30. Usually it's like 9.30. I walk through the door. Sadie's already being rocked to sleep, so I go to the kitchen. I made a yogurt parfait. I was really hungry, but I also didn't want to eat something like 8.30 at night because what happened with Parmesan garlic? Just throwing that out there. So I ate a yogurt parfait. It was delicious. And I propped my feet up on the couch and just kind of laid back and just started to unwind. Try to turn off my mind, just trying to like process everything that was, went on that day, just some of the things that people were texting me, just trying just to relax. And then I got the best text message ever. I want to introduce you to somebody. Hudson, keep this picture up. That is, on the right, my little nephew, Jehiah. Jehiah lives down in Charleston with his dad and mom, Todd and Aaron. And this is a couple, couple months ago we were hanging out. Jehiah is awesome. He'll turn six later this month. Uh, I get a text, and this is what the text says. It's amazing. It says, all on his own, just now, Jehiah prayed and asked God to save him and forgive him of his sins. He says something like this. He said, dear God, I believe everything about you. Please forgive me of all my sins. I want to live with you forever someday. Amen. And now he is super excited, this is my favorite part, to take communion with us at church. And he's asked his dad if he could help pass it out and also wear a suit. A little, he's, he's turning six in a few weeks, a little five-year-old boy. Already understands how much Jesus loves him. And I can't wait for that moment with our daughter, but just to hear and celebrate with my nephew about that, uh, 
I can't wait to see what happens in the next couple of weeks, the next several years in Jehiah's life. But just imagine that faith that you had as a kid. A lot of us in this room accepted Christ when we were kids. I was eight years old. I've told you all that story before. That I remember when I really first grasped the idea that Jesus loved me. And I remember wrapping my mind around that. I'm like, that is an amazing thing. I, I want to be loved. We all want to be, we all want to be loved. But I've told you my story several times, though, and, you know, sometimes, if I'm being honest with you, I've really realized that just knowing that Jesus loves me, in all reality, is not enough. See, we grew up singing songs, and let me see if you fit. Jesus loves me for the Bible. Little ones, too. They are weak, but. Or we sing the other song that Jesus loves the little all of the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, right? We all sang those songs. We just sang a song, reckless love, about that reckless love of God. Let me ask you this question. Is it enough to just simply know that Jesus loves you? Is it enough to know that Jesus loves you? Here's what I'm getting at. See, we can go, we can send a bunch of people to Passion. 26 of us go down, hang out with 70,000 stressful people. We can go, we can do that. We can go to the Passion Conference. We can send 80 of y'all to Winter Retreat. We can send a bunch of kids on a mission trip, whether it be Nashville or wherever we go. We can send a bunch of kids to Camp Cow. You guys can come here every single night, and you guys will hear over and over and over again how much Jesus loves you. But is that actually enough? Because what I want to share tonight is that when we are loved by Jesus, when we are loved by Jesus, that should lead us to loving Jesus. Simple. See, Jesus wants so much more than just for us to know that we love him. Jesus wants us so much more just to know that he wants us to love him back. Now, we really, if we're being honest, we cannot really give him back the same love. We don't have that capability. We don't have that in our capacity to show him that same unconditional sacrificial love. But Jesus wants our love back. Think about it this way. Parents, you guys will be more related to this. But is it nice, parents, just help me out here. You guys who are married, is it nice being loved by your spouse? Wow. Dave, you're good. You gave me a nod, so you're good. It is so great to be loved by your spouse. Doesn't your spouse deserve that same love back? Yes, absolutely. It is so amazing to be loved by Jesus, to have a, a God who's willing to send his one and only son, that if we believe in him, we should not perish, but have everlasting life. But I think it is wise and responsible for us, not to just, okay, yeah, it's great to know that. No, it should be leading us to love him back. But a lot of times what I want to dive into tonight, we don't own that and we don't embrace that. We don't embrace that love. We don't ever give it back to him at times. Because in all reality, there's a lot of us walking around this world claiming to be Christians, going to all these special events, going to all these special camps where we say, I know that I'm loved by Jesus. We sing the song, I know who you say I am, right? We say, we, I'm no longer slaves, but in our minds, we actually don't even realize, man, Jesus wants us to love him too. 
Love him above everything else. But instead, all we do, we walk around this world kind of blindly with a diminished view of God. We don't really put God in his rightful place. Instead, we put God in a box and say, God, this is how I want you to operate. If you operate outside that box, I'm not really sure I can love you anymore. We do it all the time. And we're going to look at scripture here in a second. I'm going to show you how this has been going on for a long time. But being loved by Jesus will lead us to loving Jesus. If you have your Bible on the, book, on the table or on your phone, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. Wednesday night I got to go to, as you're turning, Wednesday night I got to go to my dad's Bible study. And I always love going to my dad's Bible study because there's always a meal right beforehand. And you can't, Jesus and food, that's two great things back to back. Uh, but I was sitting in his Bible study, and I was reading along with where he was going. I was kind of opening up my Bible, and I saw something I've never really caught before. And so I'm going to share from that same passage tonight. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. <clears throat> and they came, to a, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Do me a favor. Close your eyes. So imagine yourself as this blind man. We don't know if he was blind from birth or what the circumstances were, but he's blind. A very common thing in that time period just because of the lack of medical and health care needs. But you're blind. You can't see anything. But nice enough, you guys have some amazing friends who are willing to take you to this man, Jesus, who's, who's been known to heal people, known to give sight back to the blind. So they grab you by the arm, they, they walk you to Jesus, and he says, hey, this is, this is Jesus, this guy's blind, uh, can you help him out? So Jesus grabs you by the arm, walks you out of the city, puts both hands on your shoulders, and you hear, and Jesus spits in your eye. He spits in your eye. He says, open your eyes, can you, can you see anything? And he says, well, I can see something, but it looks more like these people kind of look like trees walking around. I, I kind of see something vaguely. I don't really know what I'm looking at. And Jesus lays his hands on your eyes and says, how about now? And all of a sudden your eyes are open. You guys can open your eyes. Just imagine that story. First off, once that snort, I know I probably emphasize that Jesus probably had some holy water in his mucus. I don't know. Uh, but imagine that. Some of you guys think it's absolutely crazy, but if you actually study some of this, there, actually, there was an ancient thought that saliva had some medicinal purposes. I don't want to be anywhere around that. Just throwing that out there. If you're a homeopathic doctor, keep your spit away from me. I don't want any of that. But he asked them, do you see anything? And he says, well, I can see something. I'm just not really sure. I just see well, it looks like trees walking around. And then he does it again, and his eyes are open. What if I told you that when I read this, I quickly realized that this story actually has nothing to do with the blind man. It has nothing to do with the blind man. What if this story was just a teaching moment? What if this story was just an analogy? Yes, I believe it happened, but what if this was used for something greater than just this blind man? 
It's fantastic that he got his sight back, but what if Jesus was using this for something greater? So if you backtrack a little bit into chapter 8, it starts off with Jesus feeding the 4,000. He's already fed the 5,000 another time, but now he feeds the 4,000. If you know the story with the 5,000, he had a few, uh, loaves of fish, or a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he fed 5,000. Now here he is again with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. You do the math, we're talking about a minimum of 10,000 people being fed with a Lunchable. That's what Jesus did. He's feeding these people. It's an amazing thing that they all saw, and the disciples are right there with him, seeing this miraculous thing. It'd be absolutely incredible if he fed all that many people. I was a little worried that we were going to run out of hamburgers tonight. But imagine that, 10,000 people being fed with just a few things. It's an amazing story, and it goes on to the next part of that is the Pharisees who are always wandering around behind Jesus asking him, we want a sign. Which I'm like, you kind of just, just got one. But he's like, we want a sign. And Jesus is like, listen, you, you guys really aren't worthy of that sign, but let's keep going. So they, he and the disciples actually flee. They get in a boat, and they leave that place. And while on the boat, listen to this story in verse 14. We're going to back up a little bit. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? What he just said was, so you only have one piece of bread. There's only 12 of you. I just fed 4,000 with seven. There's only, you're upset. You're a little discouraged. There's only one piece of bread. He says, are your hearts hardened? Listen carefully to verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Just a few moments ago, he fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And already, these people who've been following Jesus faithfully have no idea who they're looking at. And it says, do you not have eyes to see? What if the entire story of Jesus healing the blind man was just a teachable moment to tell the fact that the disciples had no idea who they were actually looking at? Because it goes on to say in verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of full of bread pieces did I have? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? They've been serving this guy, walking with this guy, and yet they don't really know who he is. They have no concept of who this guy is in front of them. Maybe they're looking at him and they think they see him. They think they know him. They think they love him. But in all reality, all they have is diminished, dimmable vague view of who Jesus is. They don't really understand who he is. And I think it goes on to prove this as we keep going in chapter 8. It goes on in verse 22, or excuse me, verse 27. A very popular passage. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Very good question. Jesus has this big following of people. John the Baptist had a big following of people. All these prophets, when they would come, had a big following. Jesus wants to know, who does everyone say that I am? And they told him, some said you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah. 
and others one of the prophets. And so he asked the blatant question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him quickly and says, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone. So we go from this story of them watching them feed the 4,000 to then wondering, how are we going to eat? We only got one piece of bread. And Jesus says, you really don't understand. To the story about a blind man who may actually be a, more of a teaching moment about how they have clearly no view of who Jesus really is. To Peter standing boldly saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And that's an amazing passage. But if we really be honest with ourselves, if we look at the trajectory of what happened after this, if we look at the trajectory of Peter's life, I just want to focus on Peter the rest of the night. I'm still not really sure he fully understood this. I don't really think any of the disciples really understood this because a little bit later, a very awesome passage in chapter 9, they see Jesus appearing with Elijah and they see him appearing with John the Baptist and it's an amazing transfiguration happens and it's an amazing sight that they see there. And it should be something that they see, it should be something that they remember, it should be something that they hold on to. But fast forward just a little bit and we know what happens to Peter a little bit later. When in the garden with Jesus and Jesus says, is like, hey, Actually, back up a little bit. When Jesus is actually right, right here in verse chapter 8, before the transfiguration, Jesus starts telling them that, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be resurrected in three days. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. Ain't going to happen. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen. And he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter, the one who just said, you are the Christ. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. This man who had a bold statement, the bold confession of Peter, and now being called Satan by the guy he claims to see, the guy he claims to love. Now fast forward to the garden when he's, Jesus is there praying with his disciples, and all his disciples are fall, falling asleep. And he says, hey, tonight's the night. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to be betrayed by my servant Judas. And sure enough, the soldiers come in, and Peter, the very one who says, I'll never let that happen, he quickly jumps into action and strikes the guy right in the ear. Jesus is like, don't, no, none of that. Because he knew that the hour had come and knew that he was supposed to be crucified. He knew that he was going to, he was going to die and he knew he was going to be resurrected, but Peter did not fully understand that. But the amazing thing we see in chapter 18 of the book of John, you can turn there, because Jesus told him, hey, by the way, after I'm arrested, Peter, you, the one who said that I am the Christ, the one that you said that I am the Messiah, the one you were the one that saw that amazing sight on that mountain that day. You were the one that saw me feed the 5,000, the 4,000, all the great miracles I've done. You're going to be the one that denies me not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter quickly says, you know, I'm I'm I will never deny you. I'll die for you. I will never deny you. But here we come in verse 15 of chapter 18 in the book of John. So Simon Peter, this is after his arrest, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. <clears throat> but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the, the, servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not, denial number one. Now the servants and the officers had made 
a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter is also with them standing and warning himself. Warming himself. Now jump down to verse 25. So he's already denied him once. Now we find him standing outside the, the temple court by fire. Verse 25 says, Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, and he said, I am not. But one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not just see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied. And it was at that time the rooster crowed. The first time he's asked, he says no. Second time he's asked, he says, Don't, aren't you one of his followers? And he says no. The third time he was spotted in the garden with Jesus. Not only was he spotted, but the girl, the girl that saw him was a relative of the guy's ear he just chopped off. Blatantly obvious, you were there. You were part of his followers. Aren't you one of his followers? And he says for a third time, I'm not. So at that moment, the rooster crowed. Imagine the shame that he now is experiencing. All the shame that now he's realized, yeah, oh my gosh, Jesus said that I would deny him. I just did it. And the days and the hours that came after that, as he watched the guy who he said was the Christ, the guy who he said was his follower, the guy he said he was willing to die for, the guy who he said he loved was arrested, beaten, flogged, mocked, ridiculed, and thrown up on a cross with nails in his hands and feet, with a crown of thorns on his head, there to die and there to suffer. Imagine this, the guilt and all the shame that Peter felt in that moment. He knew in that moment that Jesus loved him, but his actions were not showing that he loved Jesus. The amazing story goes on. We know, the, we know the outcome of the story. We know that Jesus resurrected and he appeared to the disciples. He, he popped up into the room, which is pretty wild to imagine. But then an amazing story happens in John 21, if you want to turn there, where Jesus and Peter reunite. See, G- Peter, if you remember the story of who he was before, Peter was a fisherman. Tony talked about this this morning, if you were here at FECW. A lot of these guys were fishermen. Well, a lot of these guys, after Jesus was resurrected, they all kind of went back to their life. They kind of went back to fishing. It's kind of like their old ways. They kind of went back to this. They were like, well, he's, he's resurrected, but uh, nothing's really changed yet. And he goes out to fish, and it says, now while they're sitting there, over on the shoreline, they see somebody. Let's read this, John chapter 21. Start in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it out, and now they were able, not able to haul it all in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, being John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard this, 
that it, was, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of that fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 in a of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So imagine you've betrayed your best friend, you've watched him die. He's now appeared to you, but just for a moment. You're not really sure what exactly you saw, so you go back to your life of fishing. And you're out there fishing, and you're not catching anything. And a man on the shore says, cast a net on the other side, which should sound pretty familiar to Peter, but apparently in that moment it didn't. And in that moment, they caught a bunch of fish, 153 in all. And it says, in that moment, John says, it's Jesus. And then one of the most beautiful moments that I see in that passage is Peter jumps out of the boat. They're about 100 yards away. He can't wait to go see Jesus, the guy he's betrayed, the guy who he's wronged. He's, he knows that this is him. He wants to go see him. If I could ever give you a visual of what this looks like, how many of you all remember Forrest Gump? My favorite scene in Forrest Gump, after he's out on the fishing boat all night, the shrimp boat, and that massive hurricane comes through and just wrecks the area. His is the only boat that survives, and he's going through the harbor and the marina. All the other boats are just destroyed. And over there, as he's, as, he's, as he's just steering the ship, he looks over, and there's Lieutenant Dan, his best friend in the world. And without thinking, he just leaps off the boat, jumps in the water, and swims over to see Lieutenant Dan in one of the best dialogues ever. Lieutenant Dan, what are you doing here? And he's like, I want to test out my sea legs. And he goes, well, you ain't got no legs. I love that line. But sorry. He goes to him. Meanwhile, the ship in the background is like wrecking into the harbor. But he was so excited to see the friend that he loved. In that moment, nothing else mattered except that his friend was there. In the same way, Peter leaps out of this boat. He's so excited to see Jesus. In that moment, it doesn't matter in the, in the world what he's done in the last few days. He wants to see his best bud. So my favorite part of that is after he gets in the boat and goes away, it says the rest of them basically had to paddle to shore. It's like, okay, Peter, we got it. You're, you're good. You know, you're special, but we'll, we'll, we'll row the rest of the 100 yards. But he gets there. And if you notice something very closely, the last time we see Peter around Jesus, Peter is standing by a charcoal fire denying Jesus. And now the next time that Jesus and Peter interact Jesus invites him to come over to a charcoal fire to talk to him. And we come to the dialogue in verse 15. Most of you know this dialogue. It says, when they had finished breakfast, sitting around this charcoal fire, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, he's using the full name now, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he has said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is, he said, to show by what kind of death he was the glorified God. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? I don't believe in coincidence. He comes to Peter, sitting around this charcoal fire, the very place, the very the setting that he last betrayed him three times. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And it's amazing if you start studying the Greek language, it says, Jesus asked, do you agape me? Do you have a sacrificial, undying, unconditional love for me? Peter responds back, yes, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Do you agape me? All Jesus wants to know, he goes, listen, I know that you know that I love you. But right now, I want to know if you truly love me. Because if he says here, right after that, he goes, now that you truly love me, you've said it three times, you love me. You've said that I know everything and I know that, I know that you love me. I've told you to feed my sheep, he said, which basically says, I want you to take over. I want you to take care of the people I've left in your hands. I want you to take this mission. I want you to be bold. I want you to be courageous. And guess what? There's going to come a time where you're, not, you're going to go where you don't want to go. And he's telling Peter, by the way, I'm glad that you love me. But I want you to be obedient and bold, but it's going to cost you. And it cost Peter later his life. And we know from tradition that he, too, was crucified. Jesus wanted to know simply, do you love me? The very man going back to Mark 8, the one that says, you are the Christ, the one that watched him perform all the miracles, the one that walked with him, the one that talked with him, the one that shared life with him, the one that saw all these great things, that saw the transfiguration. All Jesus wants to know is, has you, have you gotten your sight yet? See, you had a diminished view of me all along. You didn't really know who I truly was. I want to know now, do you truly know who I am? And do you love me? But transition now to you and I. How does this make sense for us? Because just like the blind man earlier, just like the disciples earlier, as I said, a lot of us are walking around this world with a very diminished view of who Jesus is. We don't really truly know all that he's about. We don't really know everything about him. We don't really fully grasp this gospel message. It's true. I, I was reading, I read, this, uh, I read this great book called Love Does. I love this. Love this book. I know this, this one section I want to use this, use this quote real quick. I used to think, this is from Bob Goff, he says, I used to think that being loved was the greatest thing to think about. Peter knew he was loved. He knew he was loved enough, so he jumped out of that boat. He thought that the greatest thing was to think about was being loved. He says, but now I know that love is never satisfied just thinking about it. Being loved by Jesus should lead us to love 
Jesus. And how does that work? How do we wrap our minds around this? This is where we're going to focus these next few weeks. Last week, we talked about owning it. Well, if we own this vision, this vision of being made like Jesus, being, making Jesus known, when we own it, we embrace it. My, you've been around me long enough, you know my favorite quote to share is from Pastor Ben Stewart. He says, love embraced is love extended. That if we truly embrace this love of Jesus, we truly say, not only do I own my faith, not only do I know I'm loved by Jesus, I also love Jesus. I love him above everything else. I embrace that. What do I mean by embrace that? When you embrace that love, your life is totally different. You're no longer about yourself. You're always about Jesus. You're not focused on everybody else. You're focused on Jesus. Your worship looks different. Your giving looks different. Your language looks different. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you act, all looks different because you know you are loved by Jesus. And because you are loved by Jesus, you love him back. When we own it, we embrace it. And then when we embrace it, we extend it. That's what we're going to talk about next week. next weekend. This extending this love to one another. When we embrace that love, it's not something for us to keep to ourselves. That's something to share with every single person that we meet. And not only do we just extend it, we will also share it. In the last week we are together, we're going to talk about how we share it with everybody. FBCW, we say we love God. We embrace that. We love people. We extend it. And we love more people. We share it. But it all starts with how you and I think and see Jesus. So, as we wrap up this message, as we wrap up tonight, first I'm going to ask you this question. Do you truly see Jesus? Do you truly see Jesus? I'm not asking, like, do you see him and you know a little bit about him? Do you see him and embrace all that he is? The second question which is what I think he would ask every single one of us if we were sitting in front of him at that charcoal fire. Despite all of our flaws, despite all of our shame, despite all of our guilt, all of our sin, he would look at every single one of us and say the same question he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you see Jesus? And do you love Jesus? The answer to that question is more important than anything else. Yes, Every one of us can sing reckless love. Every one of us can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But that in all reality is not good enough. Jesus wants our love back to him. He wants us to look at him and say, you are better and greater than everything in this world. Do you see Jesus and do you love Jesus? I'm going to pray and then the band will come up and sing one more song and then we'll share in Holy Communion as a family together in a moment.